Good morning, church. We had some wonderful teaching the last few weeks, didn't we? I was really blessed with Pastor Beasley's messages to us on Psalm 46 and thankful for what God taught us through those messages. Uh, Also, to those of you that that dipped out on Sunday school, um, this is not a rebuke. I just want you to know whatever you did was not as enjoyable as what the rest of us did that stayed for Sunday school. So it was a good day in God's house. Um, Since we've had a little break from Mark, I just wanted to review where we are in the story. We're in the Passion Week. Last time, Paul covered the little debate between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders at the end of chapter 11. We remember they've been actively plotting how to trap him so that he can be captured, accused, and put to death. With extreme prejudice, these leaders are looking for any opportunity to get him to say something blasphemous or illegal or something that would be unpopular with the people following him or something that contradicts the universally held sacred religious beliefs of the Jews. They want to discredit him. They want to make him less popular, remove his spiritual authority that he seems to have, and eliminate the threat to their status quo. I want to draw your mind back to remember the lesson about the temple during Passover and how those religious leaders are able to exploit the temple worship and sacrifices for their own gain. Do you remember? Jesus disrupted that, didn't he? Do you remember how the people were asking as far back as chapter 1 in Mark? How is it that he has this authority that the scribes and Pharisees don't seem to have? Remember, they were astonished. Can you hear how the people were comparing him to them? Think about some of the other questions that would come up. Why is his teaching so believable when theirs isn't? How is it that he can do miracles, and they can't. How is it that he lives without hypocrisy when they don't? Why haven't they ever taught us any of these teachings full of power and truth? They just keep telling us the same old rules over and over and over. And we have to follow these rules because there's nobody to teach us otherwise. And we notice that it just so happens that Everything these men enforce on us seems to benefit them somehow. This scenario where Jesus has become popular and influential, displaying the power of God in his teaching and his miracles, it's the worst nightmare of the wealthy, influential, incumbent leaders who want things to continue as they have been. Jesus is a real threat to them. Even in Paul's message to us a few weeks ago, weren't they trying to directly challenge Jesus' authority? They wanted him to say something that was going to sound blasphemous. The question where his authority came from, it wasn't genuine curiosity, was it? No, it was a carefully constructed trap. But he was wise, wasn't he, in the way that he answered? So today's passage will be the first time in Mark that we see Jesus directly address the religious leaders, and challenge them head on. 
He's going to use their extensive knowledge of the scripture to show them exactly what God thinks of their abuse of position and what's going to happen to them as a result. Let's get into the text. We'll start with Mark 12, verse 1. We're only going to get through this one section today, so we'll read verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 1. The word of the Lord. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's ask God to bless the preaching this morning. Join me in prayer. Father, as we receive this teaching today, May your spirit stir our hearts to receive the word. May we be tender toward you. Lord, as we look for ourselves in the story, help us to see conviction, encouragement, admonition. Lord, help us to take heart. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name. Amen. So we'll start with verse 1. It says, He began to speak to them in parables. When the text says them, who's it talking about? The Jews, that's right. And there's going to be another non-rhetorical question, so get ready to answer that in a few minutes. He's talking about the same people he was addressing in chapter 11. The priests, the scribes, and the elders. His disciples and maybe even those big crowds that follow him around, they're still in the picture. But the focus here is on the Jewish religious leaders. The Greek word for them is a word that brings back into view an object, a person, or a group of people that was already described previously. So the text is helping us to see. Jesus isn't telling this parable for the benefit of his disciples or the crowd, but he's actually aiming it right at the Jewish leaders. 
It's not a passive telling of a parable that they just happen to be nearby and, and hear because they were, they were nearby. He's addressing them directly. Another interesting thing about this parable, often in the past when Jesus used a parable, the meaning was kind of concealed. And then he had to explain it later to the disciples privately, right? For this one, this parable is meant to be understood. It's full of Old Testament language that these men would certainly understand. They would recognize it and be very familiar with it. So there's no intent to hide the meaning. He's not going to explain this to his disciples later. They're going to understand right now exactly what he means. He wants them to know he is talking about them and he's going to make it very plain to them. So we see from this first part of verse 1 that Jesus is clearly talking to this group of men, about this group of men, and for the benefit of this group of men. Now I don't say benefit to mean that it's going to help them. It's clearly not, as you'll see. I just mean that the parable is to them, about them, and it has implications for them. Let's get into the parable. The next part of verse 1. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. If you're visual like, like I am, you almost imagine a storyboard or comic book panels kind of appearing as you see these scenarios taking place. You see a man on page one looking at this wild piece of land and it's got nothing on it. And then in the next panel, he's building a fence and then there's some guys hired to build a wine press and they're framing it out and then they're framing out a tower. You can kind of hear the hammers and nails going in the background. A couple pages in, now there's this big, beautiful vineyard with a bunch of vines growing in these perfectly straight rows. And he kind of stands back and has a satisfied look on his face and goes, wow, look at this great thing that I made. And then he says, my work here is done. And he has business to attend somewhere else. So he rents it out, travels far away for a long period of time. It's a nice start to the story. But there's a lot here that we need to get because there are important characters. Today, I don't want to focus too heavily on the symbolism for the wall or the pit or the wine press or the tower or any of the other scenery. For today, we're just going to consider that to be scenery. What's important here? I'll ask you a question, non-rhetorical. Why does anyone plant a vineyard? Somebody knows here, for sure. To get grapes. And why do they want grapes? To make wine. That's right. Okay, very good. You passed. The same reason a farmer grows crops or a shepherd keeps sheep is to produce something, right? To produce something. The picture we saw a few weeks ago from the fig tree was fruit, right? So this vineyard is meant to produce fruit that can be turned into wine. Again, for today, we're not going to try to explain every single detail with some deep symbolism. Somebody smarter than me can try to do that. Today, we're going to focus on someone planting a vineyard so that it will produce fruit. All the preparation that God does for this vineyard can be summarized with the sentiment that he equipped the vineyard with everything it needed to produce beautiful, valuable fruit for him. Rich soil, governance, safety, protection, and workers who would cultivate it. First, let's talk about the vineyard. What is the vineyard, the vine that God is cultivating? For our scripture reading earlier and for one of our songs, we sang Psalm 80. Were you listening? Did you see the imagery there? 
Listen again, we won't read the whole thing. Psalm 80, verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. We understand very plainly that the vine was a vine that God brought out of Egypt and planted in this vineyard. He had prepared a place in the promised land. The vine, and more broadly the vineyard, is Israel, God's chosen people. Now what about the fruit? This word for fruit used in the parable is the same word used throughout the New Testament to describe fruit. It's like 60 times in the New Testament. But it doesn't just mean apples or oranges or, or grapes. It's a broad term used for crops or a harvest. It's the thing of value that's produced by the labors of someone who sows and reaps and cares for growing things. It's also the same word from Galatians 5.22, talking about the fruit of the Spirit. James 3.18 also uses this word and says specifically that those who sow peace will reap a fruit of righteousness or a harvest of righteousness. The metaphor only takes us so far, right? What is God wanting to be produced from this spiritual vineyard of his chosen people? Does he want grapes and wine? No, thank you. <laughs> no, he doesn't. The verses in Galatians and James tell us exactly what the fruit is that God wants from this vineyard. He wants righteousness. Let's explain this a little more. We read Psalm 80 for our scripture reading this morning, but Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, gives us kind of a parallel to Psalm 80. Let's turn there and read it. Turn to Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5, starting with verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Do you see what he wants from his vineyard? What did verse 7 say? He tells us plainly both what the vineyard is and what is meant to be harvested from it. 
The vineyard is the people of God, and the fruit that they're meant to produce is righteousness. I quoted Micah 5.8 in my last sermon. I'm going to quote it again today. Who has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee? What does God want from us? What does he require of us? I heard it. To do justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Why does he want those things? Why does he want those things? It's because he can't abide the lack of them. Do you understand this? His holiness and his justice will not allow the lack of those things to persist, but more than that, because he loves his people and he wants a relationship with us. He can't have fellowship and relationship with an unrighteous people who are unjust and unmerciful and proud. What friendship does light have with darkness? The only way we can glorify God in that state is when he judges us and uses us as a display of his wrath. I hope we're not getting too far into the weeds, but we have to get this. God's people are meant to produce a righteousness and a holy living that glorify God and are pleasing to him. It's not just because he wants us from it, beloved. It's because his very nature demands it. What will a righteous people do? They will praise and glorify God. Isaiah 43, 21 says that he waters his people so that they will praise him. The end result of all this is a holy and righteous people who give glory and praise to God. So we'll go back to the story. That was verse 1. 11 more to go. Don't worry, it'll move quicker after this. Verse 2, and we'll go all the way through verse 8. So the Lord says, I'm sorry, let me, let me go ahead and read it back in the text. Starting with verse 2 in chapter 12. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they, him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So the Lord says, It's time for me to taste the fruit of my vine, to enjoy the righteousness of this people that has been cultivated in my vineyard that I planted. You have to understand that this is how a landlord would lease out his farmland in those times. He would rent it to someone else who would take a temporary stewardship of it, and they would work the land, and then for payment, they could simply send him a portion of the fruit of his land, the choice fruit. And the people working the land would benefit and make their profit too. They would enjoy that good fruit. Isn't that how the inheritance of the Levites was structured in the Old Covenant? Do you remember that? When Israel entered the Promised Land, all the 12 tribes received a portion of the land, except the Levites. No, the Levites were going to be God's priests. And instead of receiving the benefit of physical land, instead they would care for the people spiritually 
and they would get to keep a portion of the religious sacrifices for themselves. They would eat the fruit offered to God and benefit from the worship of God's people. And though they didn't receive a physical wealth for their inheritance, they got to share and partake in what God receives from his people. Do you see how generous that is? From God to share the privileges of his sacrifices with his priests? Arguably, you could say that they got the best part of the inheritance. So who are, who are these tenants? We discussed this earlier. Jesus is talking to the Jewish religious leaders. More broadly, he's talking about the people who have been the shepherds of the Jews since God brought them out of Egypt. This includes priests, but it also includes prophets and kings, the offices that God gives to men in leadership. So he's speaking broadly about those who had influence and leadership over Israel for the last 1,500 years of their history, all the way up to and including this group of men that's standing right in front of him. So how do the tenants respond when God says, give me the fruit of my vine? Do you see all these examples of mistreatments of the prophets that God sent to call his people to repentance and holiness? Look at verse 3, the first servant. It says, they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. I'm not going to say that this is a specific prophet, but I do think that the prophet Jeremiah is a great example of what's being described here. Let's think about Jeremiah for a few minutes. The story of Jeremiah is incredible. If you haven't read the whole book from front to back, you really should. It's an incredible story, but it's also a very depressing story. The theme of the whole book is God desiring that his people would repent and turn back to him and warning what will happen to them if they don't and describing the blessings that they'll have if they do. He's desiring contrition from them, which would lead to righteousness. Do you know what happened to Jeremiah in his life? When he was given this message, you can go and read in Jeremiah 36 to 38 just to get a, a picture. We're not going to turn there now. It's a long passage. We're not going to read it all, but I will summarize for you. It contains a few examples of the abuse that Jeremiah suffered because he was a servant of God, faithful to deliver God's message and call the people to repentance. Jeremiah received a message of repentance from God, and when he preached it, it was not popular. So unpopular that they told him, Jeremiah... You're banned from the temple. You can't come in here anymore. Can you imagine? So next God says, okay, Jeremiah, write them a letter. So Jeremiah dictates a letter to his assistant, and he has him bring it to read it to the people since he himself is not allowed in the temple. They bring the letter to the king, and they start reading it to him. You know what he does? Every time they read him a little bit of letter, the very words of God, he cuts that part of the scroll off and throws it in the fireplace. An ancient book burning. The king, one of the highest leaders of God's people, does not fear God and he doesn't want to hear what God is saying. In fact, he hates God's word so much that he physically burns the book and disrespects the message, the messenger, and makes sure that he doesn't have to be confronted with it again. He still did, though. Jeremiah just wrote him another letter, believe it or not. Those ideas interfere with his own idea about his identity and his plans for himself. A few years later, Jeremiah is falsely accused, imprisoned, thrown down into a well, and eventually exiled to live in Egypt with all the other Jews who were in exile there. 
Jewish tradition says that the Jews in Egypt got so tired of hearing Jeremiah preach repentance to them that they stoned him to death. In Hebrews 11, the writer to the Hebrews talks about all the mistreatment of God's prophets by the Jews for all those years of their history. Hebrews 11, 36 through 38, the Hebrews Hall of Faith, it tells us some of the mistreatments they suffered. Listen, it says they were mocked, I'm sorry, mocked and flogged. They suffered chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword. They wandered about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, in deserts and mountains and caves. They were homeless and hungry without food or clothing. These are God's prophets that faithfully brought the word of God to the people, and this is what they received for their faithfulness. Somebody got sawed in half? Who was that? The scripture doesn't tell us exactly who it was, not the prophet. But the same Jewish tradition from earlier says that it was Isaiah. The legend says that the king hated Isaiah's prophecy so much that he tied him up in a bag, put him into the hollow trunk of a tree, and then saw the tree in half. The early church fathers believed that was true. What a story. Just as an aside here, why should we expect anything different when we faithfully preach repentance from sin and an obedient love that glorifies a holy God? The world hates this message. They hate it. And they hate the example we set when we're trying to live it. Sometimes even God's supposed people hate this message, don't they? What did Jesus say in John 15, 18? He says, the world hates you because it hated me first. But what did he also say? Matthew 5, he says this, verse 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we're faithful to the word of God and we proclaim it to others, and we live out that holy example, and then they mistreat us, we're in good company. We Christians must live and proclaim this message of the gospel boldly. Do you think it's bad now? We see the direction things are going. All they can really do about us right now is, is lie. Pretty soon, we, maybe we'll lose our, our privileged tax status. I don't know. But you can be sure, when they're allowed to make us homeless, utterly destroy our family's legacy, stone us, burn us at the stake, saw us in half, they will. When that happens, keep living it and preaching it anyway. You'll be blessed to suffer for him. Back to the tenants. Finally, the landlord, the owner of the vineyard, sends his only son. This is the Lord Jesus. Come to preach repentance in the kingdom of God. Do they receive him? Here's the problem. They thought that what God had given them wasn't enough. We see how wonderful an inheritance that God had given the Levites but they thought little of it, and they wanted a different inheritance. They despised the blessing of what God gave them. Instead, they want land and title, and worst of all, they want their own glory. 
They don't just want the physical sacrifices for their food. They want the actual worship for themselves. They might not come and say that out loud, but they've made idols of themselves and their own status. They don't want to direct the people toward a holy God, but instead toward themselves as holy men. You remember their long robes and big phylacteries to show how holy they were? And how they made long prayers in the streets so as to be noticed, but prayers that were totally absent of the humility of a sinner truly begging God with simple prayers for mercy. How do we know that's what they wanted? Verse 7 tells us very simply their motivation for everything they did. They say to themselves, the inheritance will be ours. It's more than just forgetting who owns the vineyard. I've heard this passage preached before and the preacher said they'd forgotten who owned the vineyard and their responsibility to him. It's much worse than that. It's much worse than that. They wanted the vineyard for themselves. They put themselves in God's place thinking they could rob him of what's rightfully his. So what did they do to the son? They took him, they killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. Here, Jesus again prophesies his own death. But do you remember who he's talking to? He's talking to the priests, the scribes, and the elders. These men, these religious leaders with murder in their hearts, hoping to find a way to have him killed. How long has it been since they first had the idea to commit this grievous sin? We gloss over this a lot. At least I used to. Maybe you did too. My concept of this was often wrong. Do you know the first time they plotted to kill him? It was in John 5, 18, right after he healed the invalid man at the pool of Bethesda. That was two years ago. Two years. This horrible idea to plot and plan and find a way to kill Jesus. Two years of anger, bitterness, fear of losing their status, a high view of themselves. Two years of ignoring the evidence that the Messiah had come. They who should have been the first to see the signs, to hear his words, to obey the call to repentance, they should have been the first to bow the knee. But they didn't. They didn't fear God. They feared men. They didn't love God and others, but they loved themselves. Their hearts were not religious hearts of contrition before God. Instead, they used their religion to elevate their own status and oppress and rob those whom they were meant to shepherd. Two years to marinate in this desire to murder the son of the living God. And in the next two days, they'll be bold enough to actually do it. Verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? This question ought to strike fear right into their very hearts, shouldn't it? But he's not asking, he's not asking them to respond. He's asking them rhetorically because he already knows they're going to stay the course and have him killed. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Do you see the penalty for them? This is a direct answer to what they imagine will happen after Jesus is killed. They think he's merely an interruption to the status quo. If they could just get rid of him, things will go back to normal. Do you see the total lack of fear of God? The willful blindness. They don't love God. They love their long robes and big houses and fancy prayers on the town square and best seats at dinner parties. 
These are the same kind of people that Paul's warning about in Philippians 3, 18 and 19. He says, For many of whom I have often told you now, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So often when we read that, we think of these people outside the church that are just living up crazy lifestyles and having, you know, horrible sin that's visible to everybody. They're in the church too. Sometimes they're leading the church. Be careful, beloved. These men can't even conceive of what's going to happen to them. But Jesus dispels that plainly here. All this time, these men have been concerned about the threat to their earthly status. Jesus lets them know that there's a threat to their souls. He is not a mere interruption to their lives. They will not be able to continue the way that they have been. They're going to receive judgment for this. They will not merely be evicted, but rather they will be destroyed. In verse 10, he says, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. When he asked the question, have you not read the scripture? He's actually using a little bit of holy mockery. Righteous sarcasm. Of course they'd read the scripture. They didn't understand it. They didn't believe it. And they didn't submit to it right when it was happening before their very eyes. But they'd certainly read it. Jesus is pointing out by his very question that they were utterly ignorant of the things of God, despite their pedigree of lofty education and their status as religious leaders. Hardness of heart is so ugly, beloved. It made them blind to the truth of Jesus Christ. He quoted Psalm 118, 22 and 23, very short verse. They would have been familiar with this. What's the message he's conveying? Their rejection of him ultimately does not hinder God's plan of redemption for his people. They may reject him, but he will become the foundation. Do we understand what a cornerstone is? It's the one piece of the foundation upon which every other piece ultimately relies. This study would not be complete unless we turn to John 15. Let's turn there and read it as we get to near the end here. John 15, we'll start with verse 1. We'll read through verse 11. John 15, verse 1. I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Just as the cornerstone is the piece on which every other piece of the building relies, so the vine is the plant that gives life to all of the branches. We have such an utter dependence on Jesus. But we may not constantly feel that in the moment, even though it's always true. Sometimes things feel like they're going pretty well for us, right? Maybe we're even bearing some fruit and the fruit looks pretty good to us. But if you break off that branch, what's going to happen to it? If the branch, which is truly part of the vine, decides it wants to be its own vine, what's going to happen to it? It's going to wither and die. It certainly can't bear fruit on its own. No, it needs the life from the vine and it needs the pruning of the vine dresser to thrive. This is a Christian life, friends. Stay near him. Depend on him. And don't fear the pruning when the vine dresser does his work. What does that mean, pruning? It means he cuts off the bad parts so the rest of the vine can thrive. The parts that aren't healthy. The parts that aren't bearing fruit. He's pruned Sovereign Grace Bible Church recently, hasn't he? Cut off branches that were sick so the healthy branches can bear more fruit. It's painful, but necessary. Take heart. Let's see how this section finishes. Verse 12. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. Again, we see the fear of men. The only thing worse for them than having Jesus persist in his disruptive ministry would be for them to have backlash from the people, or so they think, so they're afraid. But it also says something important. Did you notice? It says they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Do you see what a tragedy this is? Think about it for a minute. J.C. Ryle put it really well in his commentary. Listen to this quote. We can see such an ugliness here. This is from J.C. Ryle's commentary on Mark. Let us observe in the last place that men's consciences may be pierced and yet they may continue impenitent. The Jews to whom our Lord addressed the solemn historical parable which we have been reading saw clearly that it applied to themselves. They felt that they and their forefathers were the husbandmen to whom the vineyard was leased and who ought to have rendered fruit to God. They felt that they and their forefathers were the wicked laborers who had refused to give the master of the vineyard his dues and had shamefully treated his servants, beating some and killing others. Above all, they felt that they themselves were planning the last crowning act of wickedness, which the parable described. They were about to kill the well-beloved son and throw him out of the vineyard. All this they knew perfectly well. They understood that he spoke the parable against them. Yet though they knew it, they would not repent. Though convicted by their own consciences, they were hardened in sin. 
Let us learn from this dreadful fact that knowledge and conviction alone save no one's soul. It is quite possible to know that we are wrong and be unable to deny it and yet cleave to our sins obstinately and perish miserably in hell. The thing that we all need is a change of heart and will. For this, let us pray earnestly. Until we have this, let us never rest. Without this, we shall never be real Christians and reach heaven. Without it, we may live all our lives like the Jews, knowing inwardly that we are wrong, and yet, like the Jews, persevere in our own way and die in our sin. Ouch. I can't say it any better than that. A few thoughts to finish. Some encouragement. Do you know that we're in a new and better covenant now? Do you see in in John 15 the big difference? A new foundation is laid. God has given us a new vineyard, hasn't he? The Lord Jesus himself is the vine in which we Christians dwell. He's the source of life for the whole vineyard. And does God continue to rent it out to others to tend and keep it? No, he prunes it himself. And it's able to bear a lot of good fruit, isn't it? Beautiful fruit for God's glory. It's good to be in the vine. So a few questions for you at the end. Has God brought you out of Egypt and planted you in his son Jesus and built a fence around you to keep you safe and built a watchtower in your life to warn you of danger from far off? Is he pruning you and taking away those ugly branches that don't bear good fruit so you'll be healthy and flower and thrive? Does he water you with his word? Are you in the company of other good branches? Are you bearing good fruit? If not, why not? Maybe you're watering yourself with poison or you're not planted in good, nutrient-rich soil. Maybe you have too close a proximity to a diseased branch with blight on it. This is your encouragement, church. Delight to be in the vine, planted in the Lord. Receive the water of the word. Stay in the nutrient-rich soil of the fellowship of God's saints. Or maybe you saw yourself in a different place in the story. Maybe you're like those men who had murder in their hearts, despite all the evidence that they were in the presence of the long-awaited Messiah, the very Son of God. They knew that they were wrong, and yet they persisted in their sin, being their own gods, despising the kingdom of heaven in favor of concern about worldly things. If you think that's you, but you're hearing this, it's not too late for you to repent. Don't share their fate. Don't be cut off and thrown into the fire. You can bear fruit of righteousness for him, but you have to be in him. Beloved, let's rejoice and give ourselves fully to fruitfulness to please our Father, the vine dresser. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the good work that you do in us. Thank you for planting us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The source of life itself, how can we ever wither and die if we are in him? Lord, thank you for this surety and assurance 
God, as we receive the water of the word, as we stay in the fellowship of the saints, help us to bear good fruit for you. Lord, as you prune us, change us, change our shape, optimize us for fruitfulness. And may you reap a tremendous harvest here in the South Bay. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.